This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes related to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, Rod Davis, and this week we are in conversation with Fosia Irvan. Uh, now, Fosia, as you'll hear, is the chief executive of the Community Foundation for Bedfordshire and Luton here in the UK, and someone who I've got to know well, kind of via social media, uh, and also interacting about lots of shared interests that we have in philanthropy. And as you'll hear, kind of issues around participation, power, place, lots of things beginning with P of the sort that we uh, like to talk about on this podcast. And this was the first ever in-person recording um, that we've done, uh, which was exciting and required the purchase of some new equipment and a bit of a new setup so I think I managed to, to pull it off and that the sound quality is alright if there are any kind of minor inconsistencies in the editing um, you'll have to, to bear with those as I'm kind of getting to grips with a slightly different approach but I think it all worked out okay and it was great to have a chance to chat to Fozia um, and we had a really good uh, conversation um, so we started taking the, the kind of central point being what philanthropy can do about diversity uh, equity and inclusion because one of the things Fosie is increasingly interested in are kind of issues around equity and, and diversity and she actually just on the day we recorded had just been to the first meeting of a new coalition of uh, funders here in the UK that are looking at some of these issues so we, we started off by talking about that kind of asking questions about whether this was primarily about the role that funders play uh, through their work in promoting um, equity and diversity and inclusion, or whether it was just as much about turning the the mirror back on themselves and and looking, you know, asking some tough questions about whether the charity and foundation sector. Um, is as diverse and inclusive as it needs to be and also whether the arguments for diversity and inclusion are you know primarily selfless ones about it being an inherent good in itself or whether it's actually you know partly about the the kind of making the business case to organizations that they will be better um, at delivering the sorts of outcomes they want to deliver if they if they do adopt some of these principles and we moved on to sort of talk about power more broadly within philanthropy and uh, the idea of participation and kind of how you move beyond just shifting financial resources to shifting power down to people and communities. And we picked up on uh, the idea of place going on from there, because obviously uh, Fosia uh, leads a community foundation and they are inherently place-based funders. But we talked about some of the, the opportunities that bring, but also some of the, the challenges in terms of how you uh, reconcile people's changing notions of community, for instance, with the idea of geographic place. Uh, what the role of community foundations and other funders is um, within a place and as kind of place-based funders, whether it's primarily about serving the needs of donors or whether it's about serving the community or whether it's acting as a kind of convening point that can bring people from different walks of life together um, in a way that very few other institutions can. Um, and then we kind of touched on some of the big questions about uh, issues around philanthropy at the moment um, and uh, discussed whether some of the critiques coming out of the US um, resonated over here in the UK or whether we, we both felt that there were elements of them that did but also kind of 
quite important differences in context and whether the argument really for the philanthropy and foundation sector here in the UK is that it needs to kind of engage with these issues so that we can uh, work out what is the kind of UK version of, of some of this debate rather than just uh, following the, the US one from afar. So without further ado, let's go into it. I will be back at the end for a bit of housekeeping, um, but other than that, enjoy! Okay, great. So I'm here with Fozia Irfan. Hi, Fozia. Hi, Rodri. And we're actually here in person. This is a this is a red letter day, indeed. The first ever actual in person recording of one of these things. So I'll I'll do my best not to sort of ruffle my my papers or to stare out of the window and be rude. But um, and uh, Fozia is the uh, CEO of Bedfordshire and Luton Community Foundation, uh, and also. We've interacted a lot on social media and met, um, well, it took us quite a while, but we did eventually <laughs> eventually meet. And we have lots of shared interests that are not just limited to place-based giving, community foundations, lots of stuff around philanthropy issues that we're going to talk about today. Um, but maybe the, the starting point would be for you to say a little bit about um, who you are and kind of your role at Bedfordshire and Luton, uh, and also particularly about the work you've been doing recently uh, launching the uh, DEI coalition here in the UK? Uh, well, just to give a bit of background, um, I've been in the foundation sector for a few years now, uh, probably about four years. Prior to that, I used to be a solicitor and I practiced employment law. Uh, so that's my background. But I've always worked uh, with uh, as a volunteer with small community groups. Uh, I fell into the foundation sector um, and recently just completed my master's in grant making philanthropy and social investment, which has really transformed my thinking um, about what the role of philanthropy is. Um, and then with the, a community foundation, because we're place based uh, funders, we try to research the unique needs of our community and raise funds um, to distribute um, locally. So we pride ourselves on our local knowledge, understanding um, the particular issues um, of our locality uh, and addressing them. Um, I think what I've become known for um, is the Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Coalition, which um, really arose out of my dissertation. Um, some the, the dissertation that I completed for my master's was all about how to address inequality. And uh, I was fortunate to go to the States and study with a number of foundations there um, and spent some time particularly with Greater Buffalo Community Foundation, Brooklyn Community Foundation, um, and got a, uh, and had a really transformative experience in terms of, um, uh, in terms of the work that they were uh, doing to um, address systemic inequality. Um, I came back from that, um, from that trip, um, and uh, really have been trying to uh, translate that experience into a UK experience. What can we take from that learning um, that could help us in terms of the, some of the issues that we're addressing? Um, I, over the last 18 months or so, I've been speaking at conferences, etc., talking about inequality um, and specifically talking about equity as a concept um, and because of the interest that some foundations expressed in this area, I thought it would be a um, good idea to set up a learning community, which is essentially what the DEI coalition is. So uh, 15 foundations um, accepted my proposal to come together and um, address issues of systemic inequality, um, but looking um, within two spheres externally in terms of 
which uh, communities we're funding, where our funding is distributed, but also internally in terms of how we operate um, our staff demographics, who's on our board, how decision-making is carried out, etc. And in fact, today, we had our very first inaugural meeting of the coalition, which is why I'm slightly exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) Almost as if I planned the time, and I actually (laughs) didn't, but there we go. Um, I'd really, I'd like to pick up on something that you were saying there about the concept of equity, particularly because I know it's something you've been quite careful to make the distinction between equality and equity. So maybe you could say a little bit about what that difference is and why you think it's important. Well, uh, to me, it's really fundamental. Um, if we're to become really effective grant makers, we just need to have a bit more of a sophisticated and nuanced understanding of inequality and the approaches to it. Um, Equality as a concept in the UK uh, really originated out of the sort of 1970s legislation. So it has a sort of regulatory background to it. Um, And it's all about treating people in the same way, which sounds brilliant on paper. Let's treat everybody exactly the same. Equity is fundamentally different because it's about recognising the differentiated positions of certain communities um, and uh, recognising then that they're not all at the same starting point. So it's about treating people fairly rather than in the same way. Um, so there's, there's a very good visual which, which is um, available online, uh, which shows groups of children trying to look over a fence um, and, you know, the ground being slightly lower so people have trouble looking, uh, looking over the fence, etc. There are issues with that visual, but I think it still has value because it describes the obstacles that people face um, in accessing opportunities, employment, education, um, and really um, argues for, um, particularly in the funding world, us having a very uh, differentiated approach to the way that we fund, um, but also in in the way that we operate as well. So we, we, you know, as foundations, we say that we're working for public benefit, we're there to advance common good. Um, but really, our um, the majority of our programmes are universal. Mm. We expect people to apply in exactly the same way. Um, and universal programmes of funding do not reach people equally. People are in different places. Some communities have a lot of social capital. Um, They have um, resources. They have people who can access funding. Some communities, um, and I would say the most marginalised communities, don't have that infrastructure. So as funders, our responsibility is to ensure that our funding reaches those communities who need it the most. And that means moving away from universal funding programmes to having uh, differentiated uh, programmes of funding. And so in a way, is is the end goal then to assure that people and communities and groups who are at different starting points have the best chance of finishing at the the same sort of point or at least getting to the same sort of point even if that's not the end exactly yeah. exactly and, and there's a whole, whole sort of academic argument here about equality of opportunity and equality of outcomes yeah. and what are we aiming for in, in in the foundation world and i would say it's a combination of both um, i think in in the uk we focus a lot on equality of opportunity which is where the regulation came in to make sure that there was no discrimination in terms of accessing employment etc but what we haven't um, addressed is equality of outcomes um, and what's really striking is that we have the data so the um, 
um, race disparity unit, for example, um, just looking at the racial um, aspect, the race disparity unit has documented the disparities in outcomes specifically for many, many years now. Um, but we haven't had a focus on looking at those disparities in outcomes and working backwards to see how we can address those. Yeah. Um, and one thing you mentioned up front was that it's partly the the work you're trying to do is looking at the role funders and foundations can play in addressing these issues through through the work they do, but also it's about turning the mirror on themselves and, and looking at whether they need to do things differently if they're to kind of live up to some of the aspirations around diversity, equity and inclusion. Do you do you think the, the the world of foundations or kind of more broadly the charity sector in the UK has an issue when it comes to diversity around race and and you know perhaps gender and, and other kind of dimensions i i don't think it's specific to our sector but i do think it is prevalent in our sector the lack of diversity is really striking um, so the acf report that came out pointed out that 99 percent of boards of trustees are white um, and if we're uh, claiming to be working for public benefit and we want to be effective grant makers there's just a disconnect there um, so I wouldn't say that it's, it's an issue which is um, solely limited to our foundation uh, to our sector um, but I think we're uh, we've probably got a lot of catching up to do uh, even um, in comparison to the private sector um, if you look at banks and um, investment companies in the financial sector in particular I think um, in many ways, they're ahead of uh, the foundation sector and the charity sector in addressing these issues. And what, what, to your mind, are some of the kind of main barriers that are currently preventing people from from some of the communities that aren't represented as much as they should be from working in the charity world or maybe specifically the foundation world? I think um, uh, we have to make that distinction between the charitable sector and the foundation yeah. sector um, because in terms of demographics, they can be quite different. Um, I found that within the foundation sector, um, it is probably even less diverse than the charitable sector as a whole. Um, the barriers are firstly that many people, and including myself, I didn't know that the foundation sector existed yeah. until I fell into it. Um, and then I, and then I realized that there's huge amount of power and privilege and opportunity working in this sector. So lack of knowledge. I think, um, as a sector, we have, we sometimes build in exclusionary obstacles and barriers in our processes, in the way that we recruit, um, in the way that we fund communities. Um, there are hidden obstacles in the way, um, for example, when we uh, recruit trustees, uh, you know, and, and, and I, this comes down to a fundamental point about how we define expertise so with trustees, for example, we tend to want somebody, you know, uh, when I inherited my board of trustees, there were a lot of semi-retired businessmen and we're a community foundation um, and they didn't really have much knowledge about communities or the voluntary sector, um, but they had professional expertise. So the definition of expertise in at that moment in time was about professionalism, certain backgrounds, uh, being a lawyer or an accountant, etc., etc. Whereas if you redefine what expertise means, um, then you're much more inclusive. So now we're actually going uh, at our foundation, we're going through a process where we're looking at the gaps on our board and we have completely redefined our skills audit. So we have the usual stuff in there and knowledge about 
HR and legal and accountancy and audit, all of those things. But we've added six extra categories, which all um, reflect um, people's lived experience, knowledge of working or uh, working with um, marginalized communities, being part of a community-led organization. So we are now specifically going to be seeking people who have that expertise. Um, so it, it's a lot of, uh, I think this work is about being very self-aware um, about how your processes and procedures actually um, encourage exclusion and perhaps are part of the problem. That's really interesting. Do you, When you're sort of making the case to maybe specifically to funders about the the need for them to think this through and to kind of be more intentional when it comes to these issues. It is the starting point that they should do it because it's just sort of important in, in itself and, you know, perhaps even more important because they're supposed to be kind of cause-based organisations and providing public benefit? Or, or do you tend to make an argument that actually if they want to do their job properly, they would be better placed to do it if they were more representative of the communities that they're intend, you know, trying to serve? Well, I think your latter point is actually the most successful um, in practice. Um, obviously, you would hope that the moral imperative <laughs> would be enough. Work, but, yeah. but in reality, um, the the case uh, and framing the narrative about how we are just much more effective grant makers and funders if we're representative and reflective of communities, that argument tends to work better. And in fact, um, when I studied with the the community foundations in the US, uh, Greater Buffalo, they have a specific project called the Equity Roundtable, which was all about addressing inequality. Um, and one of the things that I was really surprised about was that uh, how involved the private sector were in that initiative. They were really driving it forward. Um, and when I asked about this, um, because normally it would be the charitable sector or lobbying organisations who would be pushing this agenda, when I asked about why this was, the foundation said that they specifically built a business case um, for uh, corporates in the private sector to understand why diversity was important for them in terms of um, their future workforce and in terms of the impact that they had on communities around them. So although you always hope that the moral imperative is enough, you have to understand your audience. Um, for them, it was about the business case makes sense to for us to address inequality at a structural level makes economic sense um, for us as foundations sometimes I do have to um, frame the argument um, around how this improves us um, as, a, as grant makers but also I tend to bring in arguments about our credibility and our validity um, because you know we are facing increasing scrutiny um, and uh, you know the how we distribute funding is is coming under increasing scrutiny. So we need to have, um, you know, ready answers to show how we are reflective and representative and how our uh, grant making is effective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to broaden it out a bit because a lot of the stuff we've been talking out there touches on the question of uneven distributions of power and kind of the way in which structures perpetuate some of those imbalances. Um, taking taking a, a really big question... One of the things, I mean, I have to be honest, I struggle with most in terms of work that, you know, for the last 10 years or so for me is about kind of broadly being positive about philanthropy, although engaging with criticism, is that question of the extent to which, if you think inequality in society is the fundamental problem that needs addressing, is philanthropy ever really 
an effective tool because it's sort of represent it's reflective of those systems and structures and the ways in which wealth was created so can it ever genuinely be used as a tool to smash that up and and make society more more equal I completely take your point, and I've really struggled with this question myself. Um, but the work that I've seen um, in particular foundations, I think uh, Ford Foundation in their social justice work, um, is really um, trying to address those uh, imbalances. I think um, the answer to that question is it depends on the foundation. It depends on how self-aware they are and how much they are prepared to give up power um, in order to rebalance. So how much do they recognise that they are part of the problem? Um, at our foundation, I, mean, I feel like as a community foundation, we bear even greater responsibility um, to be representative and to make sure we're not part of the problem because, you know, uh, the, the whole reason we were set up is, is to reflect um, our communities and to work for our communities. So I feel like in, in some ways we have an even greater responsibility to make sure that we're not perpetuating inequality. And so over the last few years, we've really um, tried to be, be very, very self-aware about uh, the systems that we're creating, um, the onerous tasks that we put on people, how our decisions are made, um, you know, who who's on our board, who's making those decisions. Um, we're not there yet, um, and I think it will take many, many years. Um, so being self-aware... Um, I think is key um, to try and remedy um, that unbalance. Yeah. And one of the things, you, as you were saying there, about the if you're going to address this stuff, you need to focus on how you genuinely shift power as well as just financial resources. Um, I think is, you know, it's really interesting, the question of how you do that. And one area that I know we've both kind of um, been, been interested in is around the kind of increasing awareness of participatory grant making and approaches that sort of engage the community in genuine decision making um is you know what do you make of the that trend and is it something that you've experimented with in in your work yet or well it, it's interesting because um to my knowledge a lot of community foundations have been doing this for a very long time we've just never called it that <laughs> didn't have the right jargon we just there. didn't yeah. have the right jargon that's what we missed out um but for example even when i came into my foundation None of the grant-making decisions are made by trustees or by the foundation or by the staff. They've always been made by a panel of community representatives. So when people started talking to me about participatory grant-making, I was quite confused because I thought that's what everybody did. <laughs> so it's been interesting. Um, uh, and I think uh, maybe community foundations have... Uh, have been slightly ahead of the curve in in recognizing that we don't hold the expertise as trustees as staff members as the executive um i know for a fact there are certain areas in newton and bedfordshire i just do not have knowledge of um you know i don't know what the issues are there um at a real granular level so why would i not defer to the experience of a person who's lived there who's worked there who's grown up there um you know it, it doesn't make sense to me we've all always had um you know i've been at the foundation for over four years um, and chaired many of those panels and decisions have always been reached by consensus there has never been an issue where people have fundamentally dis disagreed uh, so to me that's a normal part of day-to-day -day working um and i feel and i i it feels incredibly liberating and empowering to give away 
uh, that decision making process to somebody else yes. uh, because you're um, because you can only take on that responsibility of decision making if you have the expertise. Um, so acknowledging that we don't have the expertise in relation to this particular ge- geographical area or this particular issue, um, but we know people who do, and they should be the ones that make the decision. I think is fundamental to the way that we work. Do, do you do you think that one of the challenges here, or could be for funders, that even where they they absolutely buy those arguments and want to do that and to shift power and are taking those approaches, there may be situations in which if you if you hand over decision making responsibility to other people in the community to solve their own problems they might do something with the money that is not what you would have done and you kind of have to be exactly and and that's that's the compromise and that's the sacrifice Um, and none of this work is easy if it was easy we'd all be doing it (laughs) so it it is difficult especially if you think um, uh, you know decisions are being made which aren't effective but what I would say is that um, if you think that if, if you, as a grant maker, as a funder, you think that th- those decisions aren't being made, um, that's a reflection of something in your process is not working right. Um, you know, in terms of who you're recruiting, what information you're giving, um, where the priorities um, have been highlighted. That's a reflection of, of something in the system not working right. But there will always be cases where when you, when you do delegate decision making, um, that uh, certain decisions um, may take place which you're not comfortable with or you're not happy with. And that's part of the process. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think that those questions are going to get more acute as the, the issues on which people are working and the sort of models that they're using to do it and I'm thinking here of kind of shifting away from more traditional formalized organizations towards kind of networks or movements and kind of grassroots activism on issues that are contentious so you know around things like the climate crisis if those are the models and the issues that you know donors or society decide need to be addressed do you think that's a challenge for sort of foundations and institutions that aren't necessarily really set up to deal with with that kind of thing that's exactly the challenge um and i think you know as institutions we've had this sort of very uh victorian model of Mm. philanthropy um based on um uh, on identifying certain organisations who fulfil certain criteria, again, in a very institutional way, and we will fund them. Whereas now, um, you know, some of the most effective um, social justice movements have been very fluid. So that's a challenge to us as funders in terms of how do we now work with a new generation of activists um, and advocates and social changers who uh, work in a very fluid, different way, um, and that's something for us to grapple with. I, but I think we do need to grapple with it. And I think also we have a role in that, uh, because one of the, uh, you know, one of the challenges that uh, we face, for example, as a community foundation, is that um, people can now raise funds themselves for their own causes. Uh, so rather than going to a community foundation or other funders, they can advertise or, you know, go through those um uh, just giving pages and GoFundMe pages, etc., um, which um, have a benefit, but also, um, you know, th- there's been quite a lot of research showing uh, um, 
the the implications of what gets funded and what doesn't get funded so if you're from a particular heritage or if you're a particular gender or if you have a particular cause you're more popular and so do we want popularity <laughs> to be the basis for funding decisions and i think that's where we as institutions do have a certain robustness um, and a certain impartiality which we can impose into that space so that the, the, there are challenges ahead but i think um, we we just need to define our space more um, more clearly. Mm. I, I think this whole issue is so fascinating because I do think as as you get the possibility of of kind of disintermediating and having people directly give to in organisations or even individuals, and that has a certain appeal. In a weird way, it sort of takes you back to a really old model of charity, but then. The danger is you're reintroducing all of the bad things that are why you introduced organizations in the middle to start with, precisely as you say, is, you know, actually people have this whole host of unconscious biases and things that they bring to the table when they're choosing who to give to and they make moral judgments about who's deserving and undeserving. And actually you need somebody in the middle to kind of neutralize some of that. And I think that's where we need to make our case more yeah. effectively in terms of philanthropy because we are under scrutiny. This is something that we can say that actually we're in a position particularly as community foundations we're independent, you know, we don't uh, we're not part of family foundations or um uh, or, or those other foundations have certain, who operate under certain constraints is we need to define that space more clearly and show what we bring. Um, to the public sector, um, which adds value. Um, so th- you know, this whole piece about scrutiny, I think this is where actually philanthropy has a role because the reality is, and I keep saying this to my um, fellow CEOs in, in community foundations, is that we are only limited by our imagination. We have a huge amount of freedom to set our own agenda. And with that freedom comes responsibility. But also, we're in a unique position where we can take risks. We can fund things which aren't popular. We can, um, uh, you know, fund movements, advocacy, etc., etc. And I think in order to justify um, our existence, that is actually the space that we should be inhabiting. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And actually, I think making a virtue of... Not necessarily a total lack of accountability, but a different standard of accountability than, say, a fundraising charity has, making virtue out of it by saying, actually, we are the ones who can take those risks is the right thing to do. I guess I my I ask people this quite a lot on the podcast, uh, you know, is, is there at the moment quite a difference between the rhetoric on that and the reality of what most funders are willing to fund? I completely agree. Um, and, and I do find that frustrating um, because I think we could be a lot more challenging and we could take a lot more risks um, compared to fundraising charities, compared to the government. Um, and, and, that, and I think that's where we would see some amazing, impactful, transformative work. Um, so I completely agree with you. <laughs> um, I'm just aware that already, because I'm enjoying talking about this, we're in danger of, of running long, so I've got loads of other stuff on us. I just want to, to shift it slightly to bring in the particular element around kind of place and community that's relevant to, to community foundations. Um, and one thing I was interested in is where you see the value of philanthropy and voluntary action in a in a place or um in a local area do you think it is sort of primarily about the work what what is achieved through that work in terms of the outcomes for that area or do you think just as important is 
the process itself and the what kind of engaging in volunteering and giving does for people by creating links between different communities. Do you think, you know, that's one of the roles of civil society is to kind of act as a space where people from different walks of life can come together, even if actually they don't really dis- you know, agree about very much? Yeah, no, I completely agree. And that's why I really enjoy working in a place-based way. Um, because um, particularly as a community foundation, you have a space where you're seen as a neutral, objective third party. Um, and this is the model that's worked really well in the US for the most successful community foundations. Actually, the one of their most critical roles is as a convener and as facilitator. It's about connecting people up. Um, and I see that as the future for community foundations here. We're, um, uh, you know, very place-based. Um, we know our localities. We know what the health sector is doing. We know what um, uh, the, the private sector is doing. We know what people in education are doing. And Actually, our role as foundations is to convene and facilitate. And in our um, locality, for example, we have three unitary authorities who don't spend a lot of time talking to each other. And uh, last year, we managed to get all three local authority CEOs um, to facilitate a funders day for us, where uh, 12 national foundations came to Bedfordshire and Luton, visited the area and spoke to all three CEOs. Now, I struggle to think of any other organisation within that space who would be able to do that. So I see our role as conveners and facilitators, but also... um, Uh, We're there to encourage local giving. Um, Fundamentally, that's what we do as community foundations. Um, Yes, there are really worthwhile national projects uh, which should be funded. Um, And yes, there's a really important role for national foundations, which is different. Um, But as local foundations, my, um, my primary objective is to make sure that local philanthropists um, businesses, etc., think about the local services and local charities and the local voluntary sector um, when they're thinking of giving, whether that's financial or, or, or other uh, in other ways. Um, so that space, uh, creating that space, creating those connections, and making a case for the voluntary sector is is fundamental to what we do. Yeah, absolutely. On on that question of of the link between people's sense of place or identity and you know giving and social action, one of the things I often wonder about in relation to place based giving or the work of community foundations is is to what extent it's sort of chicken or egg. Is it is it that people give to place-based initiatives or in a local area because they have an existing strong sense of identity and connection or actually does the act of doing that develop it and in places where people don't have a strong sense of identity can you use charitable giving and volunteering as a way of building it or do you need to have it there before you can get people to engage? Well, I think this is a really interesting question. And I think it's interesting because it's a timely discussion that we're having within the community foundation world. I think historically community foundations have focused on building uh, endowments. um, And and that was because of a historical legacy. Um, And it was all about, you know, build your endowment um, so then we can uh, give out grants and we can distribute funds. I think the tide is shifting and we're following the uh, many of us, not all of us still, but many of us are now uh, really um, taken by the American Community Foundation model, which is actually about creating impact. Because if you create impact, um, 
through, uh, then you establish your credibility. And if you establish your credibility, then funds will come to you. A fund, you know, people are attracted to your message. People are attracted to giving locally or to whatever particular issues you're working on. Um, so in a, in a sense, it's a chicken and egg situation. I think, uh, traditionally we have focused on in, in, uh, on endowments and growing endowments and thinking that will lead to better grant making. I think more of us are now realizing that actually, if we focus on our grant making and really create an impact with our grant making, um, then uh, funds will flow to us. And I think that has been shown in terms of the research, in terms of how successful community foundations have been when they have um, changed their focus from endowments to communities. And in sort of appealing to a donor, whether that's an individual donor or a corporate or something in, in your local area, what... Do you, is there any difference? Do you, do you have donors who come to the the table who their starting point is, you know, I really care about Bedfordshire or Luton or both, um, and I want to give in that area because it's that area, and you know that's that's the reason that they're interested in place based giving. And do you have others who ha- might have a a cause focus, so they're interested in a particular health issue or sort of mental health or um, uh, kind of I don't know education but come to you because they're convinced that actually acting in a place-based way has benefits in another way, perhaps, that it's easier to see the impact? Or do you find people have different motivations? Completely on both sides of the spectrum. So we, and you deal with a huge range of donors. You have some donors who are extremely well-informed. Um, they know exactly what they want to focus on. Um, and then you have other donors who want to focus on, on geography, but are not quite sure exactly what that means. Um, and what we try and do is uh, work with those donors and using our research, um, try to guide them as to, you know, what's the best use of their funds. Um, so uh, almost all community foundations um, carry out um, vital signs, which is sort of a research needs analysis on our area. And then we use that as a basis for talking to donors. Um, some donors do come to us with very fixed ideas, um, but in, in almost all cases, um there has been a partnership uh, between the foundation and donors um, in terms of getting to an end point where we're both satisfied that those funds are going to exactly what the donor wants, but also what the needs of the community are. And and one thing, other thing I wanted to ask you, which is maybe it's a whole can of worms to open, but another thing I think is really interesting about the place-based approach to, to giving or to funding is how that overlaps with people's sense of community and to what extent that's the same thing because I guess people kind of live in a place and you know again there's a question about at what level you you draw boundaries around place but also we're parts of lots of different communities geographic and non-geographic and and do you find that you have to sometimes kind of navigate that yes and I think increasingly because people's definition of what community is has changed so much even in the last five years, in the last 10 years. So those uh, links and that affinity we have to a geographical place um, has changed um, and and it will continue to change with each generation. Um, And again, that's another challenge for us as community foundations. If people don't feel connected to a geography and we're focused on geography, how are we going to make our case for them to um, give funds to us? I think um, we are fortunate in that... um, 
people are still linked historically to a place. So they tend to feel sentimental value towards the place where they were born or they grew up or they went to university, etc., um, which, um, which can still influence their giving. But I think as community foundations, one of our challenges is going to be how do we um, make our case for geographical place-based giving if people don't um, relate to that geography and don't see themselves and don't define themselves uh, by being based in a particular geographical community. Yeah, I think it's really, one of the things I think is fascinating is the extent to which technology at one and the same time particularly is kind of making it possible to be part of all of these entirely non-geographic communities. But then actually for lots of people and younger people particularly, they're acting in much more hyper-local ways than ever before because actually they're using these vast non-geographic platforms and ways of getting information to find out what's going on in their extremely local area and actually they don't really see there's a trade-off between the two. And I think uh, as our identities become more fluid and more complex, um, that's something to be celebrated. Uh, I think it's, it's something for us as community foundations to be aware of um, and to think about how we perhaps change our narrative or what we do in order to make sure that we don't lose that demographic. Absolutely. Um, okay, again, I'm, I'm where I'm going to stop both of us getting our train. So I just want to move on to some some questions, more sort of about big picture stuff about philanthropy, because I know there are things we're both interested in. Um, and one thing, I guess, is we've got two people, unusually in the UK, who like talking about philanthropy issues. There's a lot of conversation and discussion and debate going on in the US at the moment about philanthropy and its role and, and sort of critiques of it. What do you make of that that wave of it? And how much of it do you think feels like it is specific to the U- US context? How much of it resonates over here? And are there any of those critiques particularly that you think, you know, that is, I find it quite hard to answer that. <laughs> I think um, a lot of that, um, uh, that conversation really resonates with me. Um, and I, I don't know if it's because I, I still consider myself quite new into the sector so I'm uh, possibly um, uh, a bit more objective um, and a bit more dispassionate about the foundation sector but I think um, those those questions are going to be increasingly asked in the UK I think there are murmurings already starting um, and rather than waiting for that um, critique to come um, and rather than waiting for that criticism to arrive, um, we should proactively actually take this, take the steps of asking those questions ourselves. Um, you know, if we, we talk about our validity, if we talk about inequality, if we talk about the fact that are we the best pe- people to make decisions about where that funding goes, that can, you know, that can only be useful for our sector. Um, and I think it's, you know, because we, ha- we don't have a- accountability in terms of shareholders or government, etc., in-, in the way many other organisations have, um, you know, that excellence or that scrutiny um, can only be self-imposed. Um, so unless we impose that scrutiny and we aspire towards excellence, we can continue drifting as we are and then, you know, we'll have a UK Rob Reich um, and, and, and everyone will be up in arms. Yeah. But why not take that challenge proactively ourselves and, and question our validity? Um, because I think ultimately it will lead us to being much more effective, transparent um, and 
transformative in our work. And, and you know, I actually think the foundation sector in the UK particularly, not not all of it, obviously, but there, is, there are definitely plenty of people who are very willing to engage with sort of, you know, critique and self-analysis and analysis of the institutions that they work in. And I think that's really healthy. And I think, you know, the work people like ACF are doing with all their kind of groups. With the stronger foundations. And I think that's a really important uh, first step. And I'm not just saying that because I'm ACF. (laughs) I wasn't just saying it because I knew you were trusty. (laughs) Yeah, but I think, uh, you know, that um, sort of uh, self-scrutiny, I think, is really important Mm -hmm. um, as a first step uh, as part of the conversation. And in fact, even with the DEI coalition who met today, you know, I was very... um, um, not anxious, but apprehensive about bringing 15 very different foundations together in a room um, to talk about some issues which are really uncomfortable. Um, but there was a huge, um, but the, the conversation was very open. It was very engaging. People were very, were listening to each other really sympathetically. So I was hugely encouraged by that model. And I think, um, you know, that's one of the first coalitions that I've seen sort of learning communities like that Um, and I think there is some potential in that model um, for moving forward for tackling some of these issues whether it's climate change whether it's DEI um, whether it's inequality whatever it is um, because you know sometimes these uh, discussions can be really theoretical and academic Um, and actually when you get down to for example with the coalition yes we discuss what DEI means and how that looks in our foundation. But in between each of the four meetings a year, each of us will be doing some work in our foundations and taking that back. So it's not just a talking shop. Um, and having those conversations with different foundations about what they're doing, um, how we need to uh, be more critical of ourselves, how we can learn from each other, I think that as, as a model is really the way forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's really positive. And I, I guess in terms of that question about the debate in the US, I think you're right, getting ahead of the curve in, in terms of engaging with it, but also making sure we have our own version of it that is properly tailored to the UK, because there's a lot that's been said in the UK that absolutely is relevant over here. Yeah, yeah. But also there's lots of contextual differences that you've got to be quite careful of just saying, oh, yeah, that's all. Yeah, completely. And I I always say that even the learning that I've taken from the US, I translate it into the UK because you can't just transplant things. Uh, You know, we have a completely different social context, history, etc., um, so it's about it's it's just about translating that. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things, um, just just finally, um, uh, I will actually let you go. Uh, it, it seems sort of cuts across a lot of the critiques. Um, it seems to me are questions about accountability and, and transparency, and sort of a, a generalised point that people make that you know, even when they're doing good, one of the problems with foundations by their nature is they're not the most transparent of institutions. Do you do you feel that there are kind of growing demands for the foundation world to be more transparent and accountable? And what do you think it needs to do? And kind of who does it need to be accountable to? That's a really good question. I think that um, the increasing scrutiny uh, will demand that accountability. And again, we uh, we need to and transparency, and we need to be ahead of the curve. Um, I think, um, you know, you have movements even in the UK, like uh, the hashtag Charity So White mm-hmm. movement, which is asking some really uncomfortable questions um, to foundations um, 
and you know it shouldn't have taken that movement that you know yeah. uh, that you know raising those questions in that forum for us to start taking these issues seriously um so that so transparency and governance um particularly i think come down again to our credibility and our validity um uh, i know that transparency is one of the um issues that ACF is looking at with its uh, strong foundations um, report so I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what that details I've, I've had a flavor of some of the discussions and it's and I know that I know they've been really interesting because it's all about well how transparent should private foundations be um, in terms of their giving if for example they're giving to unpopular causes etc are they bringing themselves in a difficult position if they're funding uh, organizations who aren't popular etc are you you exposing them to undue risk so it's a really complex area but i think we need to understand the principles of transparency um i'm fortunate in that my chair um professor gurch randawa who's a professor of public health his i think sole mission in life is to make our foundation transparent <laughs> um and uh he comes from the health sector and um you know he chairs um a sort of ccgs etc etc and they have a culture of publishing all their data publishing their board minutes um so coming from that background he doesn't understand why we don't do the same so um but it's complex so as a, a community founder we're, we're still grappling with well what data can we make public we've gone so far in terms of uh, th- uh using 360 giving um which i think is a really good platform um but in terms of making our board minutes um uh, available in terms of making minutes from our decision making panels um uh, available etc cetera, etc cetera, we're still grappling with those issues yeah yeah absolutely and i think that the, the sort of radical version of transparency is is a great aspiration but you do need to be slightly careful to do it in the right way because it can can end up badly um well i could keep asking you things for about three hours but i don't think that would be fair and also i need to get a train and so do you um but yeah before i I let you go are there any things that you kind of particularly want to flag up that you've got coming up you'd like people to direct people towards i think um the, the work of the DEI coalition. I'm really hoping that that will um, send a signal to the to the whole sector in terms of how important that work is and how we can make as much more impactful. Um, and uh, in terms of us as a community foundation, I'm you know I share a very clear vision with my chair, and over the next um, you know year or two years, um, we're trying to really um, stretch the boundaries of or the definition of what a community foundation is and what it should be doing so i think that will be quite interesting to follow yeah so we are fascinated to to keep an eye on that um we just remain to say thank you very much for coming on and being the first ever live <laughs> live thank tonight you. in person guest um and uh, you know maybe a year or two down the line we can reconvene and see where some of these things have got to hopefully onward and upward brilliant thank you so Great. much Roderick. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, my thanks again to Fosia for coming into the CAF office down in London and for bearing with me while I uh, attempted to to sort out the setup, but we managed to to make it work um, and it was a a really enjoyable chat, um, as I hope you can tell. Um, If you are interested in the sort of things you're talking about, I will put links to things that Fosia mentioned that I mentioned in the show notes. Um, if you're interested more broadly in philanthropy and civil society issues, obviously check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. 
Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. Um, or if you like the more sort of bookish uh, stuff, follow at Philiteracy. Um, obviously, follow Fozier as well on Twitter because um, she's probably the only person or one of the few people, I think, who quite likes as much as I do to apply uh, the medium of gifts to sensible talk about philanthropy. So it's it's worth uh, comparing and contrasting. Um, uh, if you've got any ideas for other people that I could interview on the podcast uh, or topics we could talk about, drop me a line at givingthoughts@cafonline.org. Other than that, just like, subscribe, uh, leave us a nice review on iTunes or wherever you pick up your podcasts, uh, tell all your friends about it, and other than that, I'll see you next time. Bye!